The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box. The headlines this hour. Shares in ABM Bev's Asia Pacific unit jump on their Hong Kong debut in the second largest IPO of the year. Hong Kong protests turned violent again as police used tear gas and water cannons against anti-government demonstrators ahead of the 70th anniversary of Chinese communist rule. The whistleblower at the heart of the impeachment inquiry into President Trump is set to testify as early as this week, while the White House prepares to fight back as the probe gathers pace. Here in Manchester, England, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson again refusing to rule out leaving the EU without a deal. As the Health Secretary Matt Hancock tells me that whilst he would prefer an agreement, he cannot rule out leaving without a deal. There are lots of different ways that you could end up leaving without a deal. But as I say, my preference is that we leave with a deal and that's what we're working towards. A look at the U.S. major indices as they wrapped up the week on Wall Street. You can see a reversal still taking place. The Nasdaq are trading down by 1.1 odd percent, uh, outpacing to the downside uh, the extent of the falls. You can see flashing up for the S&P and on the Dow, for instance, the comparison only a fall of about a quarter of a percent for the Dow. Now, over the course of the week, as the impeachment inquiry and all the allegations started to surface around what transpired in that phone call between President Trump and the Ukrainian president, uh, what we saw was a reversal for markets but not much. The Dow down just 0.4 of a percent over the course of the week. So investors weathering that political storm. What we had by sectors in the session on Friday, nine out of 11 S&P 500 sectors were trading in negative territory to the downside in particular, flashing up as you would expect technology, and that's reflected in the NASDAQ. Financials, though, one of the better performers of the market, trading up a quarter of a percent. But just worth shouting out, another very weak performance for IPOs of the course of last week. IPOs are underperforming with the Renaissance IPO ETF falling about 2.5%, the worst week of the year so far for ETFs. So pretty weak spot for those trying to tap the markets. Uh, new thread as we come up to the start of this week, investors are globally digesting what it could mean if there's some pushback from the United States around flows of money from uh, into Chinese equities, into Chinese exposures. That was one of the threats that was tabled late on Friday around uh, a fresh threat in the trade war. So investors watching that very, very closely. Let's take a look at the ramifications for the energy and oil, uh, gold space. What we've got across the board, uh, Brent trading lower by about a third of a percent. WTI also uh, flashing up weaker. There's some suggestions over the weekend too that there might be some hit to the sector on the CBS program on 60 Minutes on Sunday. Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince effectively warning that crude prices could spike to an unimaginably high number if the world does not come together to deter Iran. So there's a bit of movement south, so not really heeding that warning. Gold prices, another casualty, and we saw that in session Friday, fourth negative week in five, uh, two tenths down for the price of gold. Asian markets this morning, uh, big focus on China with the 70th anniversary of the Communist Party. The Shanghai Composite uh, today trades down four tenths of a percent. Uh, red pretty much sweeping across the Asian markets, and you can see to Japan uh, trading lower by about eight tenths of a percent. 
the exception uh, in the green seems to be Hong Kong, uh, half of a percent in the green. The opening calls this morning. Uh, let's take a look at how European markets are set for the trading session after gaining almost half of a percent in this Friday session, third positive session in four, looking a little bit patchy across the board. So far, the uh, tally market chasing 41, but negative signals for the core in lockstep, we look like, will be moving into the red. Jeff, welcome back. Nice to see you. Uh, thanks very much indeed, Karen. A um, lot of interesting stuff going on in the markets. I mean, we're still positive on the yield curve, but obviously some of the weakness we've seen in these major indices needs to be discussed. But maybe our investing audience can take some comfort away from the AB InBev IP shares in that Asia-Pacific business have jumped on their Hong Kong debut. The brewing giant raised about $5 billion in the world's second largest IPO this year after it priced the float of its Asian business at the lower end of the projected range. The company had initially hoped to raise more from the listing earlier this year, but shelved those plans in July. Let's get out to Emily, who is in Hong Kong, with more on the story. Emily, you can sell just about anything if you get the price right. The market now seems to feel that maybe this one's set fine. Yeah, you know what? We're seeing a pretty decent showing, Jeff, for shares of Budweiser APAC uh, now into the afternoon session as we have just resumed from the lunch break. A nice rise of about 6.7%. We are trading near the intraday high, uh, last done at $28.70. The intraday high was $28.85. This is the most actively traded stock in Hong Kong today on its first day of trade uh, with something like $700 million U.S. dollars uh, worth of stock trading hands. We got Hong Kong's biggest IPO this year. This is also the world's second largest after Uber's $8.1 billion raised. As Jeff pointed out, it priced at the bottom of the range, $27, uh, translating to $5 billion pre-green shoe. If they exercise it in full, that will be bumped up to $5.75 billion. This is the biggest brewer in Asia focused on growth and cash on hand. And this is the company's CEO, Jan Kraps, talking about the company's growth. We can uh, do a lot of uh, partnerships uh, in Asia here. Even if uh, you know we are the largest grower in Asia today, uh, this is still uh, a market where we have a lot of opportunities, many markets where we are not, not leading uh, the markets as well. So if you think about our biggest markets, they would be China, uh, South Korea, uh, India and Vietnam. But if you think about uh, many other markets in Southeast Asia, we are not number one or two. Uh, so if you, if you look at Vietnam, Thailand, Philippines, uh, Cambodia, there is many, many markets that we could imagine that we can create a lot of value together with regional players in the future. This is the second attempt for Budweiser APAC to come to the Hong Kong market. Back in July, it tries to raise $9.8 billion, but due to market conditions and valuations, it pulled the IPO uh, at the pricing stage. Now, since then, uh, Hong Kong has seen quite a bit of social unrest, political protests now into its 18th week. And when we asked the CEO what he thought about that and coming to market now, uh, he says that it is, yes, challenging times in Hong Kong, but he remains confident of the strong foundation here. Here, he says it's one of the most important financial centers in Asia. Uh, also, a little factoid, 1876, that is the ticker code uh, under which uh, Budweiser Asia is trading. And he says it's an emotional ticker code because that is the same year that the first Budweiser was brewed. Reporting live from the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, I'm Emily Tan. Back to you guys. Thank you very much for that, Emily. Uh, let's bring in Ewan McLeish, who is Senior Research Analyst, APAC Beverages Alliance Bernstein. You have a very patchy record for IP 
IPOs across the globe. I was just citing how badly the ETF for IPOs did on Wall Street last week. What do you make of uh, this a new return of uh, the APEC business that we've had from AB InBev? Yeah, I think this is quite a different situation because, uh, you know, uh, Bud APEC is, is, uh, is already a business that's delivering incredibly strong margins, um, around twice the EBITDA margin of the Chinese beer peers and very strong returns at 25%, once again, about twice the Chinese beer peers. So it really is quite a known quantity, this, uh, this business. Um, and I think that's why, why it's attractive to, to investors. They, they did try uh, have a first run at the IPO a couple of months ago, um, and many people looked at that as being a bit of a failure. Um, our view is that it was actually a negotiating masterstroke. Um, they pulled the IPO at the last minute because they had teased out a control premium uh, for the sale of the Australian business. Uh, they got about uh, 16 billion Australian dollars from Asahi for, uh, for CUB in Australia. Um, and that's uh, around an extra billion dollars versus uh, the valuation that we had applied to the, Europe, uh, to the Australian assets. Uh, so we think they've actually really done a, a good job here in maximizing value and are coming back to the market um, because, uh, because they, they're looking forward to uh, quite a, a dynamic future of, uh, of M&A in the region. Uh, you and I appreciate the chutzpah, but in what sense can coming back to the market at 50% of the previous valuation be considered a negotiating masterstroke? <clears throat> well, they sold, uh, they sold uh, one of the assets, the Australian assets, for, for 16 billion Australian dollars, 11.3 billion US dollars, um, and they achieved a control premium over that part of the asset. Uh, so when you take the two, uh, the sale of Australia, and the, and, the, and the IPO of the remaining business together, then actually they've, actually, they've maximized the valuation overall. Um, so we think, it's, we think it's done very well for them. Um, by selling the Australian assets, they brought down their overall gearing by about 0.4 times net debt to EBITDA. This t- brings their gearing down by an, another uh, 0.25 times. Um, so we, we think they've done well from a proceeds perspective. Given the, um, the history of fairly racy growth levels in Asia, you might have anticipated a lot of hope in this IPO. But when I look at 33 times projected 2020 earnings on this enterprise value number, given that this is a, a, uh, well, let's, growth industry would be, I think, to exaggerate the story when it comes to global beverage sales. But does that seem a little ambitious in terms of the outlook running into 2020, 2021, that valuation? Yeah, there's no doubt that the valuation is full, um, and I think it really reflects the high margins, the quality nature of this stock. Um, and, uh, and, and our view, we, we, we uh, launched this morning with a market perform rating um, and a target price of $30 per share. We don't see a huge amount of upside for investors at this price. It's really about the kind of quality compounding over time. Um, in terms of uh, alcohol or beverages being a growth industry, it's fair to say that, uh, particularly in China, from a volume perspective, we really don't expect to see a lot of volume growth. Um, but what we are expecting to see is a continuation and indeed an acceleration of the premiumization of the industry. Um, we're seeing the, the low end of, beer, of the beer industry in, in China declining about 6-7% a year. We're seeing the premium segment and the super premium segment growing at double digits. Um, and I think that's really where Bud uh, China is well positioned. Uh, they have a, a much larger skew towards the premium and super premium segment than competitors, and they're well positioned to take, take advantage of that growth.
Ewan, I'm curious about what happens here with uh, some cornerstone investors, including GIC, buying a billion dollars worth of shares and holding on for six months. Do new fund shareholders want this business to be nimble, dynamic and potentially also active on the M&A front at this point? Yeah, I think that's the that's the M&A is the most compelling strategic rationale for this IPO in, in our view. Um, there are a no- uh, there are a number of, of very attractive assets in this region um, which are not owned by the global brewers already. And in, t- in, in particular, I'm thinking about San Miguel in the Philippines um, and Sabico in Vietnam. Um, if if it, Bud APAC was to acquire both of those assets, then they would increase their EBITDA by about 67%. Um, and moreover, they would actually really improve their organic growth outlook. Um, both uh, uh, the, uh, the Philippines and Vietnam are the kind of classic emerging markets growth stories with very large rural populations um, and people moving to cities, getting richer and spending more money on consumer goods like beer and premiumizing over time. Um, so I think this is really the, the, the rationale for the IPO in our view. And that's another reason why uh, but the, the company has been at pains to try and make sure they get out of the blocks well. Uh, get the equity listed quickly and start trading and get a good trading record um, because I think that's the best way to bring these vendors to, to market. Ewan, thank you very much for joining us today. Appreciate the time. Ewan McLeish with our Senior Research Analyst, APAC Beverages Alliance Bernstein. The anonymous whistleblower at the centre of the impeachment inquiry is likely to testify behind closed doors as early as this week, according to Adam Schiff, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. This as President Trump and his allies work together to launch a fight-back plan. NBC's Kelly O'Donnell found this report from Washington. The Ukraine call whistleblower. Unseen, unidentified, but soon to have a voice behind closed doors at the House Intelligence Committee. Well, do you expect the whistleblower to testify? Uh, and if so, when? Uh, yes, and uh, I hope very soon. One hurdle, the whistleblower's lawyers need security clearance to join him or her before the committee. Uh, and we'll keep, obviously, riding shotgun to make sure that the acting director doesn't delay in that clearance process. Lawyers for the whistleblower tell NBC News that all agree that protecting the whistleblower's identity is paramount. And so far, no date or time has yet been set. The president is the whistleblower here. Today, the White House defended President Trump's conversation with Ukraine's president as an appropriate request to root out corruption while attacking the whistleblower's motives. The president of the United States is the whistleblower, and this individual is a saboteur trying to undermine a democratically elected government. The president himself accused the whistleblower's sources of unpatriotic misconduct. Who's the person that gave the whistleblower the information? Because that's close to a spy. Trump defender Lindsey Graham from Saturday Golf Partner. The president was charmingly great host to Sunday morning advocate questioning how the whistleblower learned secret information used in the formal complaint secondhand. What I want to know, who told the whistleblower about the transcript? Who told the whistleblower about a phone call between the president of the United States and a foreign leader? That was NBC's Kelly O'Donnell with that report. Well, our U.S. colleagues will speak exclusively to U.S. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell later today. Tune in for that interview at 1700 Central European time. Still to come this half hour, Prime Minister Boris Johnson keeps the threat of a no-deal Brexit on the table 
as the Conservative Party conference kicks off amid allegations that Johnson squeezed a journalist's thigh 20 years ago. We'll catch up with Steve in Manchester for the scoop on that story. And if you just can't get enough of Squawkbox, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West. CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshao, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Welcome back. Coming up on 90 minutes past the hour, this is Squawk Box. Boris Johnson has again refused to rule out a no-deal Brexit, potentially bypassing legislation aimed at preventing such a scenario. The comments came after a difficult weekend for the Prime Minister, who rebuffed accusations that he provided favourable treatment to an American businesswoman as Mayor of London. Downing Street was also forced to deny allegations that the Prime Minister touched a female journalist inappropriately when he was a magazine editor 20 years ago. Well, speaking on day one of the Tory party conference, Johnson said his team is focused on securing that Brexit deal. What we are going to do is work very hard to get a deal. And then, if we can't, uh, we will make sure that we come out on October the 31st. But probably better if I focus on getting the deal rather than discussing the hypothesis of what happens if we, if we can't. Boris Johnson there. Well, of course, Steve, the whole Brexit story potentially could be overshadowed by some of these other allegations that are swirling around at the party conference, no doubt. They are swirling around, but at the moment, the conference is sticking with its man, Jeff, as well. You've got to remember, Birmingham a year ago, the party was very downbeat about Brexit. Mrs May didn't seem to be galvanising the party faithful. And of course, in the intervening period, the 160,000 Tory members have got their man. They've got the person they wanted in charge, Boris Johnson. And as you say, swirling allegations about misconduct whilst he was the mayor of London and before that as well are dogging him slightly. But again, I think they're just still very excited that they've got the man they want leading Brexit negotiations, who is uh, on the surface at least being very tough with the EU. You can see behind me that it kind of looks like it's it's pre-manifesto time as well, because whilst the, the initial sign is, yes, let's get Brexit done behind it, it's all the kind of things that we normally see from politicians in elections, talking about the NHS, talking about the police force, talking about the education. It's the latter issues rather than the former that historically have got parties into government as well. But I spoke to a lot of MPs, a lot of ministers yesterday, including the Health Secretary, former leadership contender Matt Hancock, and I asked him just about those Prime Minister comments and about his own comments about, yes, no deal still being on the table despite the Ben Act. Let's listen in. Of course, it is better to leave with a deal, but it is also responsible to do the preparation that's necessary to leave without a deal if that's what happens. But the government doesn't think the Ben Act has taken that off the table. 
Well, of course, you know, there are lots of different ways that you could end up leaving without a deal. But as I say, my preference is that we leave with a deal and that's what we're working towards. And this is probably why we're not in general election territory already, because the opposition parties don't trust the prime minister once an election is called uh, to basically railroad through a no deal Brexit. I spoke also to um, the Minister of International Trade, Connor Burns, about some of the concerns that the likes of the CBI, the British Chamber of Commerce, the Federation of Small Businesses, all these groups have concerns about a no deal Brexit. Listen to his comments. They're very, if I can say so, sarcastic about the, the, the track record of the CBI. Listen in. I'm always interested in hearing the views of the CBI. I admire the views of the CBI that we should have stayed in the European exchange rate mechanism. I admire the views of the CBI that we should have joined the euro. And I am eternally grateful that we didn't listen to them then. I'm listening to people like the chief executive of the Port of Dover and his counterpart in Calais who are saying, you know, we are ready. I'm out there meeting real businesses who are confident that they are ready. And we're talking to the CBI later on here, so maybe I'll play them a little bit of tape first, see what they have to say about Connor Burns' comments as well. But a lot of other very interesting comments going on here about what could happen down in Westminster. I spoke to Damien Green, the former number two de facto uh, of Mrs May, and she said, yeah, look, it's a lie if anyone MP here tells you that, that we're not all looking at timetables and how we have to rush back down to Westminster if we need to get involved in a vote. Whether, of course, they'd go for a no-confidence vote, i.e. voting for it in order to bring about a general election, maybe, remains to be seen. But would the rebel MP and of course there are 21 Conservative members here. They're still Conservative members despite what you read in the press uh, but they've lost the parliamentary whip so they're not parliamentary Conservatives at the moment. Do those 21 MPs uh, vote with the opposition in order to bring down Mr Johnson at some stage? And I spoke to one of those rebel MPs, Alistair Burt. He's a former minister as well. Uh, he's the MP for North East Bedfordshire and I said look would you go as far as voting with the opposition to bring in a caretaker government possibly led by Jeremy Corbyn. He was quite scathing about that. Listen in. No, I can't see this process as actually doing a job that Britain is required to do. Um, I don't favour an interim government or a mechanism to create this in any way because an interim government doesn't just deal with, with Brexit, it would have to deal with anything else that happened that day. Suppose an interim government was installed and war breaks out in the Gulf. What happens then? Uh, and it, it, it can't be isolated in such a way as people are thinking of. The best thing for Britain is for the Prime Minister to secure a deal, for Parliament to endorse it and for the country to move on. So, so to sum up, really, you've got basically an eye on what's going on here in Manchester, an eye on what's going on in London as well, because, of course, there's no recess, no prorogation, as we heard from the Supreme Court last week as well. So uh, basically, the events, as you mentioned, with the scandals being talked about, potentially the allegations down in Westminster, absolutely key, as indeed could no confidence votes be absolutely key. Is it an elephant trap for the opposition, or have they got a plan to actually bring in a caretaker government? And as, uh, as, as we say, really, it's a tale of two cities, Manchester and London, possibly a tale of two intercities, looking at the timetables. Back to you. Steve, fascinating um, uh, coverage on, on where we are at the moment. And as we look at the, the market implications of this event, what do you think potentially could do any further damage to the pound at this point or sentiment around the FTSE, which seems to have been relatively robust of late? We're back in sort of 122.98 territory against the US dollar this morning. Any concerns for those FX traders out there that some of these speeches could be inflammatory on the Brexit story and push the pound down further? 
Do you know, I think they're getting all a bit relaxed about it. They've all had their tin hats on since June 2016, haven't they? Look, this is the message you're going to get out of here because, I, I trust me, I've spoken to like a dozen of these guys yesterday, include a lot of ministers. The message is we are still prepared to leave without a deal. Now, how they can do that with the Ben Act as well, uh, they think that there are possibly workarounds, of course, including the fact that the EU is the one that's got to agree to an extension. So a no-deal Brexit could actually be painted as the fault of the EU. So if you hear language that such as that, as we're going, and the EU isn't talking, then possibly that could hit the pound. But at the moment, and again, I asked the same kind of question to uh, Brandon Lewis, who's number two at Dexu. We'll bring you some of that tape later on as well. Uh, and others about mood music. And every single minister I spoke to said the mood music is positive. They talked about Juncker. They talked about pragmatism as well. So I think this government is desperate for some form of deal. But of course, huge issues still remaining uh, regarding the backstop and the language around that as well. But if they get their deal, then maybe those uh, four traders will have a few days where it's one-way traffic on the pound. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.